What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. All right, Adam, you can pick one roommate from the films of Robert Eggers. Willem Dafoe, there is Thomas Wake in The Lighthouse, or Black Philip the Goat from The Witch. <laughs> Thomas Wake might be smellier. I think I'm going with the goat. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. What if I throw in a seagull? Thomas and a seagull? I'm sticking with Black Philip, my All boy. Right. That clip from Eggers' The Lighthouse with Defoe and Robert Pattinson as a pair of lighthouse keepers marooned on a remote Atlantic outpost. This week on the show, we've got a review. Plus, the third film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, Hong Kong director Anne Hui's Our Time Will Come. What's a movie man want with being a wiki? It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, we were still debating which film we'd review on this week's show The Lighthouse? or Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, the only pairing that will get your wife to respond to you in a text with the words, well, the Hitler movie does look better. (laughs) Sarah wanted to go the way of Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, she wanted to see the Hitler movie. Instead, we went to the bizarre lighthouse as a film spotting double date. Is Debbie talking to you again, Josh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, We'll we'll get to it. She was very curious. We talked (laughs) quite a bit about it. A lot lot of of questions. (laughs) And we'll have a lot of questions, I'm sure, as we get to our review in a moment. Plus, we will dive into the third film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. It's director Anne Wei's Our Time Will Come. It's a movie about anti-Japanese rebellion in Hong Kong during World War II. But first, pour yourself a nice stiff cup of kerosene because we're about to talk The Lighthouse. What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. But. But. What? One of the not actually surprising revelations I had watching The Shining for the first time as an adult was discovering that Jack Torrance isn't just a husband and father whose otherwise sanguine psyche is beset by a case of, as hotel manager Stuart Ullman puts it, cabin fever, the kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. No, Jack came to that caretaker gig at the Overlook Hotel with his toothbrush and clothes 
and a whole lot of baggage. We're told he was responsible for breaking his son Danny's arm and understand it probably wasn't the first such instance of abuse. A writer clinging to the dream of finishing his book, he's a failure as a father and as an artist, each role requiring a man, to some degree, to provide. Combine that angst with confinement and, you know, ghosts, and Jack stalking the hotel grounds with an axe becomes more inevitable than tragic, which, incidentally, I believe is one of the main reasons Stephen King has always hated Stanley Kubrick's adaptation. King liked his haunted house. Kubrick wanted a haunted man, one whose demons were always there. They just needed the right environment to be unleashed. And if I was just a little bit more talented a writer myself, there'd be a great joke here about the devil and that damn goat Black Phillip in Robert Aker's 2015 feature debut, The Witch. In that period horror piece, the setting, the farms and forests of 17th century Massachusetts with their assorted mysteries and intense isolation, helps fuel the fire of paranoia that engulfs a family when their youngest son disappears as if out of thin air, prompting suspicions that the oldest daughter might be dabbling in witchcraft. Here, too, the father has got some baggage, having just been kicked out of his Puritan colony due to a religious dispute. Over the course of Ager's latest, co-written with his brother Max and set again in New England, this time closer to the turn of the 20th century, we learn that new keeper Ephraim is also carrying a few burdens. There are allusions to a violent act from his time as a lumberjack, and Ephraim, played by Robert Pattinson, is tellingly disinclined to partake in his craggy boss's toast during their first dinner together. Willem Dafoe's superstitious Tom insists, and Ephraim, unwilling to imbibe, replaces the alcohol with water before reciprocating. A cue, or so I thought, that Ephraim, who claims to be just seeking a living like any man, might be an alcoholic, not a teetotaler, and the 28 days he's signed up to spend on the island isn't merely a new start, but a form of rehab. I settled in for what was sure to be an extended, if enigmatic, allegory for this age-old struggle, only to be diverted and occasionally confounded by Eger's hallucinatory black-and-white mixture of murdered men, sea monsters, seductive mermaids, and a mesmerizing light so consuming that Tom zealously restricts Ephraim to toilsome work that prohibits him from ever feeling its grace or glow. Josh, alcohol does eventually become a key character in The Lighthouse, especially once a vicious storm makes Ephraim's exit uncertain. And to come full circle, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that one of these two men does end up chasing the other with an axe. So what condition curses our wikis? Does it have something to do with alcoholism? Cabin fever? Some other more abstract spiritual malaise? Or is the secret to appreciating the lighthouse just drinking the kerosene, choosing to focus on the rich filmmaking and twisted absurdity of it all, forsaking any worry of explanations and deeper meaning? Well, I'm going to answer this both ways and say, first of all, all of the above to the first option. Okay. Um, you can pick any one of those and have your fun with them. But also, I'm going to say that you don't need to figure out what this is about to enjoy it at all. Because I was confounded, as you well know, having come out of the movie and mm -hmm. gone to get our own drinks afterwards, I did not know what to make of this thing immediately after, yet I had a great time with it. I kind of loved this movie, even though it's very different in some ways from The Witch, which I also loved. And I think that the form and the style is – you can get enough out of that to really have a good time with this film – 
if you're willing to, and if you set those questions not aside completely while you're watching it, but don't worry about figuring them all out in the moment. As you said, Debbie did have some questions. We kind of looked at some of those while the four of us got together, but we also tried to steer away from too much talk just to kind of save it for the show. She ended up liking the movie quite a bit too, and it was a lot of that stylistic stuff that she responded to, the cinematography, uh, the aspect ratio, the you know silent film style boxy acts aspect ratio, and she also loved Defoe as I did. I do think that there's going to be a litmus test for viewers when they're watching this movie. I wonder if it might be the foghorn. If you can get through the first 10 minutes of this film where that persistent Mm -hmm. wailing moan just rises and lowers in the background and think that that's a, a very immersive touch, basically one of the many ways sound and image just make you feel like you're eventually getting doused with seawater yourself, then this is going to be a wild ride you enjoy. But if you find that to be ostentatious and annoying, you're in for a long ride because the movie builds upon that in its sound design and in that look, using candlelight to really, um, or lamps to be the Mm -hmm. sole illumination in a scene so your eyes are kind of scrounging for details in the corners. If you are not into it in that beginning, maybe with that foghorn, I think this is going to be a long ride for you. Well, ostentatious, yes, I felt that, but annoyed, no, not yet anyway, not by that beginning. I was pretty well entranced by the very beginning of the film because of all those production elements, but also because it's wordless for a good 10 minutes or so. I think up until that point, they have that conversation about the toast and we hear Willem Dafoe start singing this old tune. So I was pretty well into it or wanting to see where it was going to take me. It puts you in a little bit of a trance, this movie does. But overall, the Kempinars had a very different experience than the Larsons <laughs> oh boy. watching this film. And, you know, I think every critic probably has one director whose work they can absolutely appreciate intellectually. They recognize the talent. They appreciate the talent. Yet, for whatever reason or reasons, find the work mostly hollow and probably even a little bit tedious. And I never really had one of those until now through two films, being a little bit disappointed and underwhelmed by The Witch and now seeing The Lighthouse. I think Eggers might be my guy. And again, we're going to get into a lot of the very positive elements with this film and the filmmaking that I do respond to on an intellectual level. But like Pattinson's Ephraim, The Lighthouse itself is weird. It's complex. (laughs) It's testing. And soulless, which doesn't mean that, like Ephraim, the movie doesn't have transcendent aspirations. I definitely believe it does. But just like with The Witch, for me, and I know I was all alone, and it sounds like I'm mostly all alone on this one, too, there's something oppressive about the craft. That's the word I'd use that I just find a little bit suffocating from that score and the sound design, which is intricate and it's impressive. Don't get me wrong. You mentioned the foghorns, the seagull sounds, the mm-hmm. monotonous sound of both the crashing waves. The waves right? never let up. No, they never do. And those are kind of mixed with the coal engine that is powering the mm-hmm. light. And so there's always this kind of droning, trudging sound, just like their lives kind of take on that same effect. And, of course, the production design. 
I would call this house where they live immaculately soiled, if there could be such a thing, and grubby, but in a, Pers- in a, in a way that soiled. Yeah, but grubby in a way that you can tell it was designed within an inch of its life. And you mentioned some of the aspects of the framing, the specificity of it, and the camera movement, the black and white, the square aspect ratio, which we'll talk about a little bit more, I think. And this is the same DP here as the witch, Jaron Blaschke. The period language you throw in, in terms of all these elements that are just coming at you, it is one Sarah leaned over to me five minutes in or whenever we started getting sound and said I could really use subtitles, and I said, me too. And I probably felt like I missed, honestly, about 20% of the dialogue just because of the way it's performed, not only the language itself, a little bit hard to decipher, but the performances and the way it kind of runs together. But there is an obsessive attention to detail with this film that I typically would be here praising. And I do get that Ager's ability to sustain such a dreadful tone is what many appreciate so much about his work now through two feature films. But for me, Josh, what I was always most aware of had nothing to do with the story or the characters. It was the effort. And part of that is the effort of the characters on screen. I don't mean just the actors, though. They're definitely working hard, too. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But the characters themselves, there's a real tedium and drudgery to the work that they're putting in. But I was always aware of the effort, that painstaking effort, the toil of the cinematic endeavor. And I hoped that through all that toil, there was going to be a path to enlightenment. And it just never emerged for me. I didn't really feel like there was any mystery to the film. Ultimately, despite all the mysterious illusions, it had a certain inevitable sweep to it. And I have seen a few comments here and there from people touting the dark comedy on display in the film, all the laughs they found in it. There's definitely one exchange I recall that was so ridiculous. It was a Pattinson reaction that really did work for me. But I never tapped into that. Not enough to loosen that sense of oppression, I guess. Even Josh the farts aren't funny. And any comic will tell you fart jokes always play. They've played since the beginning of time. They play now. They don't play here. Well, maybe, maybe that's not, why I'm mad at Robert Eggers. Maybe they're not meant to be primarily funny. I mean, maybe they're a little bit of uh, a power play. And also, it goes back to the sound design, to yeah. be honest with you. So it's atmospheric. Um, okay, so th- there was a ton there. Uh, yeah. I want to get to all of it, the comedy especially, because that's something I'm still trying to wrap my head around. The toil, you mentioned this as you know, being toilsome. You could argue he's made two movies now, which are visions of hell. Mm. And now I'm I'm not going to write this, but over at Think Christian, someone is working on, Joe George is working on a piece exactly examining the lighthouse as basically a depiction of hell and a man condemned to hell and trying to get his way out of it. So I think there's a lot there. Mm. Um, I do but too. that may resonate with the toilsome aspect that that you picked up on. And you definitely see that in Pattinson's performance, right? He's always struggling mm-hmm. and striving. It's a very physical performance from him. But let me give you a few things that I agree with before we'll move to why I really think you're missing the boat on this. And you mentioned the word soulless, and I can see that being an issue here in comparison to The Witch, because I would argue that the soul of The Witch, which makes it very complicated because of where that movie ends, mm-hmm. is in the main character, Thomason, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. And that's I mean, why I like that film better. Okay. That, yeah. is, that is someone who you can become invested mm-hmm. in what is happening to them. And I think that is not as effective here with the Pattinson character, with Ephraim. And we can talk a little bit maybe more later. Maybe we'll do a little spoiler why I think that might be intentional. Um, But I understand that. There's not as easy of an 
emotional, personal in in this film. Um, and the one thing I don't know that you mentioned troubled you, but I will say I did struggle with a bit here compared to The Witch is the pacing. I do think as things start to spin out of control and we're asking ourselves, is this because Ephraim is losing his mind? Is it because Thomas is malevolently organizing things against him? And you're right. We don't get clear answers. All of these are in play. There didn't seem to be as much of a build towards some sort of climax in that experience. Things would go up and down, back and forth. Spoiler talk. I have a reason why that might be as well. Maybe we'll get to. But I can understand why those two things um, would keep you Mm -hmm. at bay. But let's jump to that aspect ratio to start with for some of these formal elements that I just – again, some people may say they're gimmicky and showy, but I – I don't get enough of this sort of aspect ratio in my movies, so I could use some more when I see it. And if it's used intentionally and expertly, I'm just thrilled by it. And it compresses these men's experience. Of course, it makes you – it puts you back in the mindset of watching something like F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. And I thought of the gloomy, murky shallows in that film and how they're echoed here. So it is a way to evoke older movies and the time, but it's also a way to box these men into their time Mm -hmm. and place. Um, And think about even that cistern that Ephraim has to continually tend to, this dirty cistern. It has a square opening when we look down into that murky water. And that shot where we're doubly boxed in, we have the square of the opening and the almost square of the frame. There's a claustrophobia that builds within this film because of the use of that aspect ratio. And the black and white, I mentioned how, you know, that was effective in just making things indistinct. Right away, I I thought of uh, the first shot here we get is off the bow of a ship looking forward and over water. Again, it's unclear, but every once in a while, we think we get a glimpse of the lighthouse. Very similar to the first shot in The Witch of those woods, those the trees without leaves that are so gray that they merge together to make this indistinct fog. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the witch, you and I, afterwards, we were like, was the witch in black and white? We couldn't, yeah. quite, couldn't quite remember because it had that tone to its cinematography. And here, it's a doubling down on that for more black and white. You mentioned all the elements of the sound design that I would agree with. And again, those are just some more details as to why the aesthetics of the film really worked for me. Yeah, and I just want to say a little bit more about the aspect ratio as well because it's 1.19 to 1 here, which I think I could be wrong. I didn't look this up, but we haven't talked about that many films here in the show's history that were shot with that square aspect ratio. I think this might be the smallest in terms of it being a square that we have discussed really in recent memory because we did talk about a movie that's another A24 film, The Nightingale, that uses Mm -hmm. a similar aspect ratio, but again, I think a little bit more rectangular than the one we get here. And we have a similar effect to The Nightingale in that it does confine, it constricts, it intensifies the faces in close-ups, and we have two great faces here on screen. You said that it compresses the men's experiences, it compresses their expressions, Mm -hmm. right? It makes them even more vivid as well. And if I was questioning it at all early on, just questioning the use of the technique and whether or not it would pay off, the first time we see a shot of the actual lighthouse, 
I understood the choice and I was on board for the rest of the film because it's this perfectly vertical object, right? Mm -hmm. That then appears in its full grandeur in that mostly vertical frame without having all that space on the sides that a traditional aspect ratio would inevitably require. It just makes that light itself seem all the more awe-inspiring and all-powerful, which I think is really key to this movie because it's clearly that light, if not meant to represent God, is meant to represent some kind of omnipotent force. And here I'm going to... Transcendence, yeah. Yeah, I guess I'll give some fodder here for the Think Christian article, though you guys can tell me how simple this view of the movie is. But of course, it's not hard to look in the Bible and find passages that reference the light in relation to Jesus or to God. So like John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And this movie made me think about a film that it's nothing like at all in terms of its narrative or its overall style. But I was thinking about the Lord of the Rings a lot watching oh, sure. this movie, right? Yeah, because the Eye of Sauron. The Eye of Sauron is what that tower, it's so vivid, even in the black and white, that it almost blinds you as yeah. a viewer. You understand the impact it must be having on those two men. And, and a total and, evil force in that case. Yeah, exactly. Or it could. And, and I guess that's the mystery behind it. But when you have Defoe at one point saying... The light is mine, mm-hmm. right? He covets it and he wants to keep it just like Smeagol with his precious, of course. And his voice even sounds the same sometimes, not suggesting this movie is meant to be influenced by Lord of the Rings. But it's there in terms of the feeling that light mm-hmm. gives that character. And that Bible verse, the one I mentioned from Matthew that talks about letting your light shine and seeing your good deeds, there is a sense that Pattinson's character, and I love that you do say Ephraim. I've always thought of it as Ephraim, but it's true that in the movie, the only person who says it is Willem Dafoe, and he definitely says it as Ephraim, which I think is part of his kind of interesting pronunciation of all words, but Ephraim is seeking that, I think. I think he's coming here. I suggested that it could be read as this sort of allegory for alcoholism, but whatever way you look at it, it is supposed to be, I think, for him some kind of salvation. The light is supposed to give him some kind of salvation and that hopefully whatever bad deeds he has committed in the past will be erased by the light and his goodness will be exposed. And what we actually see in the movie is the exact opposite seems Mm. to occur. And is that maybe because, I wonder if Eggers is suggesting that Thomas hoards it all for himself, that if Thomas, if Defoe's character was actually a little bit more willing to share whatever grace, if that's even the right word, that he has benefited from by working with the light, if he was willing to share it, maybe then Ephraim wouldn't be driven to madness. Was he ultimately driven to madness because this light of God or whatever force you want to call it wasn't shared with him? I don't know. It's fun to think about, though. It's possible. Based on this and The Witch, I don't think we're to look for any endorsement of goodness in, in where Eggers' films are going. Um, that's one of the things that makes them kind of difficult to wrestle with. But yeah, that's certainly, as I said before, there are so many things at play here. Let me jump back to another thing you mentioned, and it's the comedy aspect of this, because There is a lot you could easily laugh at. And I myself did laugh out loud. At one point, Thomas gives Ephraim this curse. He just launches into this curse. And it's such a thunderous – it's like a tidal wave roar coming out of Defoe's 
mouth. We'll get to the performance as well. But that was, again, such a powerhouse moment that I laughed at it, both at the language and the the fervency and just the, the experience yeah, of it. Yeah, kind of the audacity of the it. The audacity of it. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, so I didn't really ever find this to be a full-blown comedy, though. While I recognize you could easily start laughing at this thing from the beginning, partly because of the language. Now, The Witch, I never had that instinct at all, though I also understand you could there for similar reasons. <laughs> as soon Eggers, as the goat starts. <laughs> well, yeah, at that point. Becoming too, a more a, prominent character. That's an in or out moment for sure. It is. But the language too, because he is using, you know, did, did research to documentation from the time to get some of this language, some of these terminology, and it just sounds funny. It does. And so you could laugh at the witch that way. I never had that impulse. Here I did have a little bit more of the impulse. I, like you, have heard people refer to this as a black comedy first and foremost, and that's how they've enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if it means to be funny in that way. I tend to say no because the witch did not at all. Now, you can't – that's not to say a filmmaker can't shift gears, mm-hmm. but it seems odd to me that suddenly you'd want to use the same materials to make something completely comic. Yeah. Did How did it strike and, you? And Just yeah, the, well, similarly, but also I think when you were watching – Two characters, or at least one main character early on in this film, Pattinson, struggle as much as he is. It's hard to watch characters struggling and find it funny, right? I mean, so I I think just in that way, again, I go back to that word kind of oppressive. There is an oppressiveness to their condition, to their state that makes it, I think, a little bit difficult, if not to laugh at, at least to laugh at initially. You want to sort of – you want to sympathize with them and you want to be experiencing this kind of through their eyes and so you're not condescending in any way to them. But as they become more and more unhinged and everything unravels around them, I think they do become funnier in their interactions between each other. That's probably true. That doesn't mean necessarily that I was laughing out loud a lot, but they're – there are a couple moments that work in that way. And speaking of Black Phillip, I think there is some intended dark comedy in the use of the seagulls here, especially when he he meets the one that has, you know, it's been blinded in some yes. ways. It doesn't have eyes, essentially. And that's kind of that line of creepy, funny, you're laughing because you're nervous, but also because it's such an outlandish moment. Yeah, that's it. And those land for me. Like, the, I think the tone is right there when they use, when the yeah. humor is used that way, So we do disagree on the performances insofar as I think... They're so crucial to this movie. It's a two-hander. It's just these two guys the entire time, right? So if you're not maybe in sync overall with the film, then those performances maybe aren't going to be the thing that rescues it for you. And let's be clear. I think they're both great actors. And despite here having multiple in this movie, one of the characters having multiple literal masturbatory scenes— these are actors who are never masturbatory in their approach to acting. And I don't think they ever get there in this movie. They are guys who can take the most outlandish, absurd material and characters and ground them and get usually at some fundamental truth. And there are absolutely moments of that here. These guys, to put too much of a fine point on it, are not scenery chewing actors, or at least they're not doing it because they enjoy the taste of the scenery. There's a reason for it. I give them all that. And knowing that, Josh, deep in my heart, there were still times, and it was during that sequence you talked about in particular, the one where we get that extended kind of tirade by Defoe, where all I was thinking about was, 
the mechanics of the performance. I was thinking about Defoe's choices. The terms. The yeah, words. I was thinking about how much fun I felt like both those actors were having and how little <laughs> fun I was having oh, really? watching them. Yeah, I really was. In? It just seemed it seemed capital <laughs> letters. We're making choices here. And, you know, watch how deftly I can unspool this mumbo jumbo just so fluidly and so breathlessly. They do it. And yet, again, it just gets back to the craft of the film. I was just always so aware of all of those choices that went into it that I was never able to latch onto it just as cinema, actually, just pure cinema, just as storytelling. Well, I'm going to argue that Defoe can choose some scenes. I mean, he's in the past. He's, he's sure. been known to do that. I think he has that tendency. In the service and of the story, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the material, I think. Yes, it does. I think he chews, depending on how much chewing needs to be done. But he definitely has that tendency in a way I don't think that Pattinson necessarily does. Pattinson here, I, I just love how he, he internalizes the increasing distress, almost in the opposite way of where Defoe goes, where everything just kind of gets drawn into him and he gets more hunched over. Yet he's got those, you know, for a dreamboat actor, he's got a way where he can lower his eyelids that is very disturbing. Hmm. And in this film, he uses that in crucial moments so that you know a breaking point of some sort is going to arrive. For sure. And so I appreciated that about the performance. As far as Defoe, I mean, if you're if you're going to design a movie where you have a craggy old lighthouse keeper, <laughs> who do you want? I know. You want Willem you Dafoe. Do. And his face alone looks like it's been carved from the rocky shores. And then with that stringy beard, it's like the seaweed is still clinging, <laughs> clinging from the rock yeah. and just dripping. He is something to watch here. And I don't think it ever tips over into getting outside of the character if you're willing to, to go back to your early other reference of a film, which I think is spot on, The Shining, if you're willing to see him also as a man who is giving into some sort of madness. Right. And I think if you allow that sort of fantasy element to come into play, then it becomes a little less showy, shall we say, and more just heightened. Mm. Um, and, and I do think... I like how he rotates, too, between being this kind of – sometimes he's like a simpering old sea dog. And then other times he'll – during that curse, he's like a thundering Greek god. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the vacillation there in the performance and how he keeps you off kilter as right. well. with yeah. Who is this guy? What is going on with him? And how does it relate to how he's treating Ephraim? So yeah, I and that's all there, Josh, in addition to his vulnerability at times. And I think that's another yeah. laugh and maybe another moment where I actually did laugh out loud in the movie is – when they're having some fight and his cooking comes up and he's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's like, don't you like my lobster? You know, genuinely, I mean, genuinely yeah, <laughs> I love that part. All right. So have, if we've covered everything you want to cover, I have a spoiler question for you. But okay. is there something else we should maybe get to beforehand? Not in my notes, Josh. OK, well, then if you haven't seen The Lighthouse and it may sound like we talked about a lot of detail here, but I don't think we've given anything no. away really that uh, that will spoil your experience. So you're probably safe until this point, but I'm going to throw out a theory um, that is probably best heard until after you've seen the film. How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks? Two days? Help me to recollect. <laughs> 
So a little bit of spoiler talk here. Adam, I'm wondering if there is one reason why the power dynamics seem to shift, as I said. Defoe, it sometimes seems, Thomas seems to sometimes be like the simpering guy who's who's almost afraid of Ephraim. And then other times he's more at the top. Mostly he's at the top. But also that pacing issue I mentioned where things didn't build to one clear point. They kept rising and falling. I do wonder if it's possible that this is one man that we're watching, the experience of one man. And they make a point of them saying this is a four-week stint, and maybe it's like a four-decade stint. And just as Ephraim can't get off the shores because of a storm at one point, maybe Thomas has been abandoned for a variety of reasons decades before or just plain forgotten. And he's been here for four decades by himself. And who he's actually talking to is this younger version of himself. So, so Thomas, we're back to The Shining. We're a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. So Ephraim is Thomas when he arrived. I mean, there's an obvious possibility in the fact Ephraim confesses at one point his real name is Thomas, right? He's taken on this assumed name. So they both share the name Thomas. As you hinted at, um, not only Ephraim has this accusation of murder in his past, but Thomas also becomes accused of killing the previous assistant, that he had. So right. Ephraim's predecessor. So I think that's there. And, you know, I think probably most likely what this is, is the depiction of Ephraim's mind unraveling one man in this experience. And we're seeing it filtered as he's experiencing it through all this sort of sea lore and Greek mythology as well, right? Poseidon comes mm-hmm. to mind right away, but we were looking up a couple of things afterwards and like uh, Prometheus, yeah, right? And fire. Proteus come, comes up. So there, there are a lot of possibilities there in Greek mythology. But I just wonder if this is maybe the crumbling mental state of a single man. Does that, does that hold any water, any seawater for you? <laughs> um, I would not dismiss it, though I really do feel like I want to give Eggers the credit, if that's even the right word, for trying to craft two distinct characters and wanting it to be a case where we're seeing how the older mentor figure and this younger recruit, if you will, or the new employee, how they interact with each other and inform each other. That said, there is a point in the movie, and I think you kind of alluded to this, there's a point in the movie where we do as viewers, I think I did anyway, become confused. The movie willfully tries to confuse us about whether or not the person who maybe has the haunted past that involves murdering someone isn't, in fact, Willem Dafoe's character. Exactly. Right? That that's what yeah. happened to the previous guy. That's where I guy. started thinking The previous about guy it. who, as Thomas says at one point, started to have designs on the light, and he had to keep yes. him from the light. Yeah. And Pattinson's character has some designs on the light, and he's going to keep him from it, right? So it would make sense in a way. And there's another moment. I can't remember exactly what is occurring, but there's another moment where Defoe accuses Pattinson of something that I swear we saw from Pattinson's perspective, Defoe do, but he accuses him of it. Well, there's the, in the logbook, he, he yes. writes for self-abuse, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Tr- but we also see Pattinson when he's, when he's repairing the roof, he looks down and that's what he sees. Exactly. Uh, he, exactly. That's, he sees, that's uh, it, right? So, so, so if that, that throws you when you wonder in that moment, okay, is that Defoe's character willfully confusing all of us, mainly Ephraim? Right. Is, is it is it part of him kind of gaslighting him, right? Yeah, Which yeah. He, he absolutely could be. Or is it the director gaslighting us? Sure. And it gets at your theory. I'm not sure. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure either. Like, I don't think that's the answer to it. I think there's more evidence the other way. But what I do like about this movie is that it's a possibility mm-hmm. um, that makes sense and that we can play with. I, I I think another thing that made me think about it is the fact that they, as you mentioned, do end up cursing each other. So it does begin to, fe- as things unravel, mm-hmm. it begins to feel more like an equal facing off while they're losing, <laughs> they're losing yeah. their minds. You know, they, they seem to be losing their minds at the same time together, which made me wonder if it was one yeah. mind. And I guess maybe the last thing I'll say, which isn't necessarily spoiler talk, but one of the aspects of the film that did fascinate me, and obviously I talked a little bit about the God element here or what might be said, and you had a good point that we haven't seen anything really to suggest in his two films that he's into pointing out the positivity of human nature or the positive effect that a relationship with a higher power could have on you. But I was struck by, especially comparing it to The Witch, how both films are about, if you want to strip away the notion of God, a conventional notion of God, they're definitely about belief systems and perhaps the futility of them, Mm -hmm. the overwhelming nature of them or the inability of man to see them as a guide or signposts and not to completely succumb to them and let them run their lives and ruin their lives, right? Because we have Pattinson's character openly hostile to the worldview of Thomas, which is that he's just clinging to all these superstitious notions of the seaman's life. And he has a certain structure to the way he's decided life is going to be for him every single day maybe every single day for eternity, right? He is bought into a certain belief system that Pattinson is in conflict with. And overall, we see how their two systems are in conflict with each other. And I think, obviously, The Witch is very much about that as well. Yeah, I, th- I think if there's any through line, it's, it's that uh, humanity will distort a belief system, even if there might potentially be any good in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once human beings get their hands on it, they're going to distort it. Yeah. Okay, we will end there with The Lighthouse. It's currently playing in limited release. If you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, if you thought the scurvy accents were done, we're going to play Massacre Theater next. Then we visit Japanese-occupied Hong Kong of the 1940s for the third film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, Our Time Will Come. Stay with us. When the tide comes Josh, there was a time in my life where I thought the best actor on the planet was Robin Williams, or at least my favorite. It's not crazy. No, I don't think so, right? Because of The World According to Garp, one of my favorite movies of all time, Dead Poet Society and The Fisher King, that triumvirate of films put him over the top as someone at the time, this would have been right after The Fisher King came out, I thought was 
the best actor going. And that makes me really excited to hear a brand new podcast called Knowing Robin Williams. Another reason I'm excited, Josh, is that it's co-hosted by Dave Itzkoff, who is a great Twitter follow if you're not already following him. And he wrote the book Mad as Hell, The Making of Network, which I read a few years ago when it came out. So I'm expecting great things about Williams and great insights from Dave Itzkoff, a cultural reporter for The New York Times, along with his co-host, Christy Westgard. And the show is really designed to explore the life and legacy of the beloved entertainer. And it will include never-before-heard interviews from those who knew Robin Williams best. That includes the screenwriter of Dead Poet Society, Tom Schulman, Barry Levinson, who made Good Morning Vietnam, and you will get in-depth analysis of Robin's craft and his comedic genius. But even more than that, the podcast really is, as the title suggests, it's designed to get at not just these characters, but get at the man behind those characters. A man who was born, by the way, Josh, right here in Chicago, Robin Williams. Indeed. And yeah, you think in his stand-up performances, you're starting to see maybe the man behind the characters a little bit, but this would be really exciting to go even deeper Mm -hmm. than that with this podcast. If you want to check it out, just search for Knowing Colon Robin Williams on your favorite podcast app. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. And always good to see you, Mr. Scorsese, even if it's on my TV. You're listening to Film Spotting, Al Pacino, and Robert De Niro there in the trailer for Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, which will play at selected theaters, including here in Chicago, for a couple of weeks before its November 28th premiere on Netflix. And to be clear, we're going to see it in theaters. We are. Yes. We are fortunately (laughs) going to be able to see this one in theaters, and I can't wait. Actually, we're seeing it just a few days after we sit here and record right now I'm eager. You've been doing a bunch of homework on Scorsese. Not for this show. Should we? Am I going to draw attention to the fact that our producer tried to push us into a top five Scorsese scenes and no. we resisted? No, don't. I shouldn't have said it. Because no, because now everyone is going to add to the pushing. And he's right. I we know. should do it. But it's a monumental task. And we we have to just wrestle with the Irishman itself, which is monumental. Yes. Three and a half hours. That's our excuse. That's yes. what we're telling You've ourselves. convinced me, Josh. Okay, well, good. Well argued. And here's the thing. It's not like we're not going to get to it at some point. It might not even be because he's got another movie coming out. There's just always a good reason to take a look at the work of Martin Scorsese. So that top five is coming up at some point on Film Spotting, just not next week. We will talk about The Irishman, and we will close out our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon with Zha Zhanka's Ashes, Purest White, which is a critically acclaimed film from earlier this year. We did want to acknowledge the passing of Robert Evans, 89 years old, Hollywood super producer. If we're talking about old Hollywood here in Scorsese or oldish Hollywood from the from the late 60s and the 70s in Scorsese, Pacino, De Niro. You got to think about the subject of the 2002 doc, The Kid Stays in the Picture. He was the head of Paramount in the late 60s. And he did produce not only The Godfather, but some great films like Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, and Harold and Maude. Now, you're going to have to film me. And did you see The Kid Stays I did. in the Picture? I did. All right. So good, good film. representative yeah. of, of his career, his Absolutely. life? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Matches his tone and style very well, I would think. So I do recommend that. I also recommend that you check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, with Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They're doing a one-off episode, something a little different this time around. It's about the new HBO series, The Watchmen, which I haven't been able to check out, and I feel 
absolutely left out. Everyone's talking yeah, about it. Yeah, once this, this one. show is done, I think I'm going to start it because, really? as you know, I have a son, my oldest, Holden, who is obsessed with history and oh, is particularly so obsessed element. with alternate histories. Got it. So yeah. I think this would be a fun one for us to watch together. It's supposed to be really, really good. Now, next week, after they talk about The Watchmen, Next Picture Show is going to do a Bong Joon-ho double feature, Parasite, which I think everyone in the world loves, and The Host, Bong's earlier film, The Host Was My Entry to Bong Joon-ho, a really good one as well. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. We had a new poll question last week on the show, looking ahead to The Irishman, where we asked you to tell us simply what your favorite Martin Scorsese movie was. And for options, and I'm on Sam's side here, I loved that he had this approach, picked one film from each of the five decades that Scorsese has been making movies. We knew we would anger some people. We did give you the other option. But regardless of whether or not you aren't a fan of The Wolf of Wall Street, like Josh, you're not, or I was going to say you have issues with these other four films I'm going to mention. I don't know how that's possible. But regardless of the options we chose, I don't think you can say that these aren't five top-tier movies. And the fact that they were made in each of five different decades is yeah, remarkable. Exactly. I, there's a problem with the, this poll well, question now. Sam didn't well, give in, did he? He he gave in to an extent. We'll 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 play it out here, Josh. Basically, what happened was we did get some negative feedback in the poll, but that's always going to happen yes. with a deeply flawed <laughs> film spotting poll question. That's of course trademark. But really, it just became kind of boring because the movie that you thought would win it all did, in fact run away with it. So the options were Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Departed, The Wolf of Wall Street. And we did get this bit of feedback from Clay and Boynton Beach before we get to the results. Not thrilled with these poll options as both The Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed could easily be relegated to other status by The Last Temptation of Christ and Mean Streets or several other titles to make this more of a contest. That said, it still wouldn't be much of a contest because the easy answer is Goodfellas. Yeah. And Goodfellas did win this poll in early results, 43%. It's been a while since we've had a poll question where I feel like there's been a real dominant runaway winner with more than about 20, 25%. So 43 for Goodfellas, a decisive victory. And then I was surprised, Josh, in second place with 22%, Taxi Driver. Not, not Raging Bull. Yeah, that's that's where I did vote and where I thought it would have gone. So basically, because the results were just a skewed. given. A you, well, they were, they were a given. We knew it was going to be Goodfellas. So Sam posted a new question, which is, which is your favorite Martin Scorsese movie since Goodfellas? And we decided to post all 13 of those movies as options. We did exclude The Irishman since most people haven't had a chance to see it yet. Josh, maybe not surprisingly in early voting, every single film has at least one vote. That includes even Cundun, which I haven't seen. And you know what? There's another Scorsese I haven't seen. I shouldn't be allowed to vote in this poll. I have still somehow, can't explain it, just a fact, I've never seen The Aviator. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, I'm not a Scorsese completist either, though, so I can't say anything. I hope – do you think everyone's happy now? Have we managed to make everyone happy? I'm sure we will find some complaints (laughs) somewhere in the feedback, and we welcome those complaints. We do encourage you to vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you have a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. You have anything to drink? I believe the kegs are upstairs. 
That is what the Cretans drink. I'm talking about alcohol, liquor, the good stuff. All right. I got some scotch. Single malt? Aged 18 years. The way I like it. Jennifer Coolidge there as, is this how she's building the credits? Stifler's mom? Probably, right? It sounds I'm, right, doesn't it? I'm assuming. It? Alongside Eddie K. Thomas as Paul in 1999's American Pie, written by Adam Hers, directed by Paul and Chris Weitz. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back when we did our 9 from 99 review, a split decision on American beauty. So... Why American Pie? Well, there's an obvious reason there, but let's see what else listeners came up with. Dustin in Albany, New York, laid it out simply, succinctly. Number one, both movies were released in 1999. True. Both movies have American in the title. Also true. Mena Suvari is in both movies. And four, both movies feature an older adult lusting after a teen, Lester and Angela in American Beauty, and Finch and Mrs. Stifler in American Pie. Here's Eddie Strait from Austin. Hey, guys, had to chime in on the rare massacre theater I actually know. You guys went with the Yang to American Beauty's Yin with American Pie. Aside from the obvious connections, I would be disappointed in myself if I didn't share my favorite connection, which is that both are spoofed in the great and hilarious Not Another Teen Movie. Disagree with that claim? Here's the oft-referenced David Ehrlich on the topic. Yeah, he did link to a Little White Lies review from David Ehrlich back in 2015. And the headline of that review or article about Not Another Teen Movie was, Not Another Teen Movie is an effing masterpiece. Subhead, would Chris Evans have been cast as Captain America had he not starred in this malign teen classic? David, underselling things once again. <laughs> David, he's he's really good at that. Though, you know what? I thought he truly was crazy. Like, I was sure I hated this movie. And actually, I reviewed it. I wrote a newspaper review at the University of Iowa when it came out. Only gave it two and a half out of four stars, but spent most of the time describing how much it made me laugh because I appreciated when it spoofed the movies I loved that were teen movies of my generation, like The Breakfast Club. So you're a fan of not another teen movie. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle, but shocked. I was mostly positive. We also got this from David Zobel, who points out that Sean William Scott, who is Stifler, starred with Chow Yun-Fat and Bulletproof Monk, and we had seen Chow Yun-Fat in Let the Bullets Fly, which was the first film in our Chinese cinema marathon that was reviewed as part of that show. That is a sharp catch, David. Here's Sean Means from Salt Lake City with one more connection. Watch carefully, and you'll see John Cho in both movies as one of the MILF guys in American Pie and a potential house buyer in American Beauty. Yeah, I remember seeing him in American Beauty and having that moment of recognition. Yeah. Having no recollection that he was in that movie, and there he was. Thank you to everyone who participated in Massacre Theater and sent along your comments. Josh, you're going to reach into the hat. You're going to pick out this week's winner. And that winner is John Hartman from Los Angeles. Congratulations, John. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. We move on now to this week's edition, which we were just listening to here, our little bit of preparation. And <laughs> you did accurately note that the scene is only about eight lines of dialogue. Feels like it's eight minutes long. Yes. There's a lot of pauses. We'll be doing a sped up version. Yeah, let's condense some of that. Yeah. And there is a line where the character, the main character in the scene's name is mentioned. We will take that out to try to make it a little bit more difficult, though 
I don't think that's going to be much of an issue with this film. You think this is going to be easy? All well, right. there's a reason why it could be hard. But if I say that, it will be a huge hint. Okay. So, well, let's hold that. I'm going to have to be vague there. Now. Who am I playing? I know who you're playing. Yeah. Because we have done literally now hundreds of editions of Massacre Theater yes. since you joined the show. And have we done this before? Almost, no, I don't okay. think so. But almost every one of your performances, even when you're playing a woman, is slightly guttural and menacing. Okay. So I think I know what I'm doing. The person who speaks first in this scene is absolutely <laughs> who you were born to play, Josh Larson. So I, so I always have a hint of this character. And that's what I'm saying. At least in your I acting. I don't know how to feel in, about in, that. In the Josh that comes out when you're performing. Okay. All right. Okay. So. I'll do it then. With that setup, For are your you part, you ready? Need, you need another hit of that kerosene. Oh, I need I need a lot. But you know what? Speaking of choices in the lighthouse, I'm making a choice here. All right. I like it. Here okay. we go. And action. Still thinking of running? Think you can outrun the world? You know the problem with being the last of anything? By and by, there'll be nothing left at all. Sometimes things come back, man. We're living proof, you know, man. Hey, but that's a gamble of long odds, ain't it? There's never a guarantee of coming back. Passing on, that's dead certain. Someone in a mother <laughs> It's our only hope, lad. That's, a, <laughs> that's us. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> line. You started to do my line. That's a sad commentary. The world used to be a bigger place. Well, I said, ha. That's us. I said, that. How am I supposed to know when your line is done with that? <laughs> Good gracious. Oh, man. If anything, we entertained ourselves. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred. <laughs> I didn't understand a word you said. Choices. <laughs> Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, November 11th. And you're complaining about the lighthouse. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. This That's from the trailer for 2017's Our Time Will Come from Hong Kong director Anne Hui. It's the third film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. So far, we've had something we could probably broadly describe as entertaining. Yes. John Wen's Let the Bullets Fly. Then a more confounding mm. experience with Fruit Chan's The Midnight After. And now, again, we've come upon something I think it's fair to say is completely different. Yeah, something mostly straightforward. Yeah, a historical, epic, a wartime drama. Uh, this is set during World War II, specifically Japan's occupation of Hong Kong. And it tells the story of Fong Lan, a heroic figure in the Hong Kong resistance during the Japanese occupation, when we first meet her, she is a school teacher or was a school teacher before the occupation and 
gradually becomes involved in the resistance. Yeah, and it weaves together a few different characters and storylines, but ultimately all revolving around Fong Lan. And our marathon curator, our expert, Sean Gilman, provides, as he has been throughout this marathon, some additional context. He says, compared to the last two films, Our Time Will Come is downright conventional, a World War II spy movie that should be instantly recognizable to a broad audience with a few special touches that hint at why Anne Wei is such a terrific director. Along with Choi Hark, Wei is the leading figure of the Hong Kong New Wave, a group of young directors, most of whom had studied in Europe or America, who had moved from TV into filmmaking in the late 1970s and early 80s. Less flashy than Choi or other New Wave directors, Wei has nonetheless worked in a variety of genres over the years, a trilogy of films about Vietnamese refugees that provided key early roles for Chow Yun-Fat and Andy Lau, kung fu and crime movies, and above all, melodramas centered around women. Our Time Will Come is the third film she's made about women during the anti-Japanese war, including 1984's Eileen Ching adaptation Love in a Fallen City and Our Time's immediate predecessor, The Golden Era, a red-style biopic about author Sho Hong. Sean's take on the movie is that Our Time Will Come is genre filmmaking at its very best, a wise and suspenseful thriller with terrific performances and a message that resonates around the world. If it were an American or even a European film, it would have been an art house hit and a serious Oscar contender. But as it is, it barely got a release in the U.S. So we now have our context from Sean. We know how he feels about the film. We're excited to welcome back our professor who helps us with these marathons, Nathaniel Myers from South Bend, Indiana, and hear his thoughts and his prompt for us, Josh. Hey, Adam and Josh. With this week's marathon film, Anne Hui's Our Time Will Come, we move from two relatively manic films to one considerably more staid. Characters recite poetry to one another, conversations are shot in largely unobtrusive long takes, and violence is presented not at breakneck speed and in gory detail, but in slow motion with a degree more subtlety. In fact, its more sober tone was such that, for me, I occasionally worried that Our Time Will Come was going to slip into prestige film territory, both as a capital I important historical drama and as a cinematic encomium to the valorous Hong Kong resistance fighters of the film's focus, primarily in the figure of Zhou Zhen's Fang Gu. But actually, anchored by some terrific performances, most notably Zhou herself, who finds just the right moments to imbue her otherwise stoic performance with a worldly vitality, I felt the film managed to circumvent most of its potential prestige pitfalls. Like Ken Loach's The Wind That Shakes the Barley, a film that I was often reminded of while watching, our time will come gains quite a bit by reminding us of the ways that war inescapably encroaches on our lives. Whether it be the small moment of satisfaction when Fong successfully hands over her first delivery of propaganda leaflets, or the uncontainable anguish that breaks through her stoic pose as she comes more to terms with her mother's fate, or even the present-day framing device that illustrates the way history lives on in the mundane lives of people long after the fact, the film's quieter beats offer more than mere valorization. They remind us that in conflict, while you may not wish to choose a side, conflict will happily choose one for you. So I'm wondering how you both responded to the pretty dramatic shift in tone that this film brought to the marathon. Did you find it was a good change of pace, a different if equally engaging sample of the contemporary Chinese cinematic landscape, or did it, for lack of a better term, feel safe compared to the previous two films? Thanks, guys. As always, Nathaniel frames it well, and I say that because I think my answer is both. Josh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I liked the change of pace. I did overall like the film. And yet I think calling it a little bit 
prestige feeling and solemn at times, certainly in comparison to our two previous films, is accurate. I absolutely had to calibrate or recalibrate myself coming off those two movies that are in their own unique and different ways cartoonish in how frenetic they are at times and how bold they are visually. We talked a lot about that. I'd also say how risky they are in terms of their storytelling. And the bolder strokes of our time will come aren't really probably the highlights here at all. I'm thinking of the slow motion falling we get in an action scene with bullets whizzing by that really does feel like it's out of a different film entirely and a lesser film, I would say. Even some of the interior shots, and I was thinking of it feeling prestige but it's exactly the opposite. It's noticeable, especially in the very opening scene where we see this group of resistance fighters basically making their plan about how they're going to go rescue these scholars, which we do see play out. And it's lit so artificially to me that they almost felt like History Channel recreations, if that makes sense. And I don't think that's true at all for the exterior scenes or every interior scene, but it's definitely there in several of them. The real pleasures, though, are those quieter moments. Nathaniel mentioned Fong's smile when she kind of gets away with lying for the first time as a rebel, and that's mirrored and matched later by a really subtle smile on her mother's face when she first successfully deceives a guard. You really do get that sense that there is an undeniable emboldening thrill when these women have committed to something and are actively engaged in a struggle versus sitting on the sidelines, which they are at the beginning of the film. And really, ultimately, that's what this movie is about. Nathaniel spoke to this idea of it devalorizing the conflict. It really isn't about these heroic figures, not in a conventional sense. It's about people like these women who do get involved and play a part, even if at first, anyway, it's a small part. Yeah, they first... Each of these characters has to figure out what they're going to do to survive in this scenario, and then it builds from there what they can do to contribute to the actual resistance, um, not only for Fong, who we should say is played by Cho Shun, but for the two other men that kind of make up the triad in this movie, which is Blackie Lau, played by Eddie Peng. He's a guerrilla soldier, the guy who recruits her mm-hmm. eventually into the resistance, and then Gam Wing, played by Wallace Huo, who is... Fong's boyfriend at the beginning of the film, then they start to separate and he kind of poses as a collaborator, but is really undermining from within the Japanese occupation, the offices there. Yeah, we come so, to believe that he is, though I have to say, and maybe I was just confused, I was never really sure about no, him. No, I think we're meant I think to, we're meant to be a little bit for a while. Unsure. And and yeah, that was an interesting trajectory to follow. So yeah, each of them are trying to navigate their way um, in this scenario and you're right you know words like uh, stately handsome elegant i don't know that we'd use those for the two previous films um, that we've seen in this marathon but they certainly apply here i think maybe the western equivalent is something like a masterpiece theater miniseries mm-hmm. and i don't mean that in a derogatory way at all this is this is really well designed um, and the exterior shots are actually the the compositions here are quite beautiful Agreed. that way manages uh, in some of those scenes. And I do like how she balances those more prestige moments with um, some really intimate details that capture this experience. The the one I might point out is when um, Blackie Lau has killed the Japanese spy in her mother's apartment, essentially saved the people who were living up there. The spy yes. was coming to get them. And he's carrying the body over his shoulders down the stairs and encounters Fong on the stairs. 
and the body's foot gets caught in the banister and he yeah. can't go any further. Little help. <laughs> a little help. And and she has to put her hand on the foot, push it through. And and what the way Hoy stages it shows you that this is a very minor thing, but it's actually the but it's first an act, gesture. Isn't it? It, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's her first act towards entering the resistance because at this point her mother doesn't want anything to to do with it. As a matter of fact, we suspect, at least I did, that her mother may have been the one who sold out the people living upstairs um, in exchange for food. I mean, this is not – this doesn't paint people as good or bad, but it's right. just starving in yes. a lot of situations. Yes. Like they, they are desperate for food and I thought perhaps the mother was doing that so that she could get some extra food from yeah. the Japanese Well, soldiers. the whole movie is about having to make those kinds of yes, choices, exactly. not just to – commit to a cause and to get involved. But I was especially struck by it early on in the film. The first 10 minutes are scene after scene of characters having to negotiate something or having to navigate something and usually having to sacrifice something. We even hear it in that very opening scene where they say, okay, you're going to go rescue these scholars and they're going to get this much food and you're going to get this much. And it's less than them. You're going to be making that sacrifice. That's part of the deal. You guys signed up for it kind of take it or leave it. And we get it in an impromptu marriage proposal scene where they end up sharing a cake. And don't they kind of squabble a little bit over who's going to eat the cake or is he going to get one too? Or are they both for her? That's then mirrored by a dumpling scene later with Blackie, Lau, and Fong, where he shows up and they have that same kind of back and forth about, no, you eat it. No, you go ahead and eat it. But we see those choices being made always, just like you said with the mom, where you recognize that they are having to sacrifice sometimes just to subsist. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And to jump back to Nathaniel's question he posed at the top in terms of the conventionality. I'd as well say that um, yes, I appreciated it because it's a genre that's that's well done, but I don't know that it was simply because it came on the heels of of the others. I would say so far, probably uh, Let the Bullets Fly is my favorite of the ones we've seen, which is of a very different style. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I like this movie on its own terms, um, but it was maybe also a refreshing yeah. change of pace in some ways. Uh, I do want to highlight, though, the central performance by Cho Shun as Fong because one of the things that I like about her early on before she even joins the resistance is the way um, she shows that this is a character who's not content to just keep her head down as her mother is definitely and understandably willing to do. There are a number of scenes where something is going on outside and she's the one to stick her head out the window. She can't help but look. Yeah, she's always peering out to see what is going on and that um, that leads to taking those minor steps, which eventually lead her to to be really a leader, a leader in this movement. And you know, Peng as Blackie Lau, he you mentioned how that one scene where they're rolling down a hill and being shot at by soldiers, seeming like it's out of a different movie. Maybe he almost his character. I I really enjoyed him. I did too. But he felt like he was out of. Maybe he's like a Robin Hood figure, isn't he? I mean, weren't you thinking about Let the Bullets Fly? A little bit, yeah, yeah. I can't believe I'm blanking on that. Zhang Wen. Zhang Wen, the 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 whole Pocky kind of character, right, is a little bit what Blackie Lau is like here. Yeah, and I enjoyed it, um, but it did feel like we were almost – and this genre shifting within a film is something I think we've been experiencing um, so far. So it makes sense that even though Our Time Will Come is a bit conventional, it has that element to it as well, where there's a little bit of a dashing Robin Hood figure coming in the form of Black. Yes, I do love in Shoshun's performance the way that we see 
a pretty subtle transformation in her because early on, she's definitely a little bit more innocent, naive, curious, absolutely. But really, there's no sense that she perhaps understands the real intricacies of the sacrifice that is going on and the struggle as a whole. And as we see her get more and more involved and make more of those difficult choices, you just see a greater confidence in her. You see how more purposeful she is in her movements and in her expressions and just in all of her actions in general. Now, I will say that there was a part of me that when it went from kind of her first real, okay, I'm all in, I'm definitely a part of the resistance now to then we get a little bit in voiceover almost, I think, that says, I didn't see her again. And we'll talk about this because I definitely want to talk about the, oh, the documentary element. Yeah, here. yeah. But then it elides time. I don't know how much it mm-hmm. jumps forward, but we have a character say, I didn't see her again or meet her until she was older and more experienced. And it jumps ahead to this time where now she definitely is a full-on superior. She certainly still has bosses, but she is more in command. She definitely does understand the struggle more. We see her in a leadership role. I think that's fair to say. And there was a part of me wishing that rather than that being elided, I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved mm. to have. It's a different movie. I, I know that I'm calling for that. Yeah. But I would have loved to watch just because I like the character so much. I like sure, the performance sure. so much that I would love to have seen more of how she actually did make that transformation instead of just jumping ahead to it. Yeah, I could see that. So what did you make of these sequences? There are maybe four five throughout. They're black and white contemporary um, set up as if they're documentary interviews. But in fact, it's um, they're fictionalized. The actor is Tony Cafe Lung, so different than the Tony Lung we we might normally think of, um, but he's essentially portraying a man who, as a boy, was part of the resistance and helped out Fong from time to mm-hmm. time. Did that add something for you, or? Well, it it did go back to Nathaniel's word, make it seem a little bit more prestige, mm-hmm. and maybe that's because I was thinking about the movie Reds, which it reminds me of okay. the way Warren Beatty in that film blends this historical yeah. epic. Saving Private Ryan has with, that element. Yeah, you're right. And maybe it's because I like Reds better, but he does include actual interviews with people who were alive during the time of those characters and those conflicts. So I felt like I understood ultimately what Way was trying to go for there. And I mentioned that the boldest strokes of the film aren't the ones that necessarily pay off the most. And I would say that was how I felt about it up to a point because it worked okay just hearing this voice and this perspective without really knowing whose perspective it was. And then I think it justified itself in a visual moment we get where it's that transition I was talking about earlier with Fong's character, where we come back to the present day and that character, Ben, and he's not saying anything this time, though. At this moment, he's looking off camera. And my recollection is that he's looking off camera and then it cuts back to the past. And we see a young boy who's interacting with Fong, who has his head positioned in a similar contemplative way. And that visual cue tells us, oh, that's that's who he was. We didn't know up to this point. We now know who he was in this story. And even though there's not really maybe a payoff with his character Mm -hmm. in terms of the flashback to the past, I do think there's a payoff to the character when we see that he's the character who ends the film. It seems so fitting to me that ultimately it takes us out of this sweep of the historical epic monumental decisions that are being made and a major sacrifice at the end of this film that we won't completely give away, but a major sacrifice. And that being the moment that a lot of movies, certainly 
of this nature would have ended with. And they would have milked that for sure. every yeah. sentimental, emotional moment they could possibly get out of it. I probably would have forgiven it because it is a tremendous sacrifice. But the fact that Wade decides to end the film with, I suppose, if you will, a common person, someone from today who lived through that struggle and really has the benefits, I suppose, of the people who sacrificed and it putting the perspective back on him and those everyday people that just made so much sense to me at the end of this movie. Yeah, I think what that conceit, the documentary conceit can do if handled well is it really it sh- emphasizes that history matters, that it matters now in the present. Yes. And I think that's also interesting when you consider the present politics of the film, which I know that was brought up in The Midnight After, and that was something that maybe, you know, wasn't as clear, not being immersed in Chinese politics, how that film might have been referencing it, but certainly on my mind while watching this as well. Um, and you have to think, yes, this is a patriotic picture in some ways, um, celebrating uh, Chinese victory over the Japanese occupation. Um, But also, and I think Sean mentioned this in his email as well at one point, you could also see things through the light of Hong Kong, you know, as a current special administrative region of China, also being thought of as occupied in some ways. And so these being Hong Kong filmmakers telling this particular story, um, it's it's a movie that when you bring that present into it, can be can be seen from a couple different mm-hmm. angles. Yeah, and to close with a couple more thoughts from Sean on that very note, he says, it's a movie about leftist guerrillas fighting against the occupying Japanese. It might have been a patriotic bit of propaganda in lesser hands, and certainly that is how it was received by mainland censors. But the politics are kept just vague enough that one could take it just as easily as a metaphor for resistance to the mainland as a celebration of its ruling party. And even still, Wade deflates all the triumph out of her scenario, instead focusing on the work of war, on the men and mostly women who did all the dirty work of resistance and the terrible prices they paid for it. I think obviously all true and well said. And as I mentioned, that big sacrifice that is maybe deflated a little bit, but the emotional climax of the film, certainly I love that the decision that's being made, the very tragic decision that's being made is made completely by her. It's not, right? It's not by a commanding officer. It's not by anyone else suggesting it's what should be done. In fact, other people are willing to act and sacrifice themselves in what we're to understand is probably a futile attempt. Yeah. It's to do what they think is the right thing to do. And it ultimately is her call. She has to be the one to say, no, I think this is the right thing to do. And that makes it even more tragic. And of course is so appropriate to a movie that is about action and about making those little decisions that have a big impact, sometimes big decisions that have a big impact, but also maybe can be sort of forgotten by the world and you just have to move on. And that's what this movie ultimately does after she makes that decision. It does bring us back to the present day rather than dwelling on that tragedy. And the staging of that scene is nicely handled as well. We should point out that at this point, Blackie Lau and Fong are are planning, since we're spoiling these movies in this marathon, they're they're planning to rescue her mother from this. Okay, prison. I wasn't going to say that, but, but okay. It would have been, well, I, I just want to get to the staging aspect of it yes. because they're outside of the prison. They're on a pathway at night. And he is, he as her superior, right, could have said, no, this is too risky. Exactly. We'll lose too many men. But he, he, paints the picture of what they'll do. He gives her every tool at her disposal to go through with it. And then she walks away, makes the 
decision. Mm -hmm. No, we will lose too many of our own if we do this. And then she starts walking down the path. And instead of him walking, it just reemphasizes what you're saying. Instead of him walking past her and leading her down, he just goes up, she stops, crouches down because the enormity of her decision is upon her. And he just waits for her there with her until she's ready to move on again. So it's just an echo of exactly the dynamic at play. It's really probably the highlight of the film. It probably is. And that I just spoiled. You did just spoil it, but that's all right. I think people will appreciate it even if they see it, especially with your reading of the scene. And also, we have to understand that part of making decisions is that there are consequences sometimes to your decisions. And that's definitely the truth, as we see in that scene. We have one more movie left in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. We are planning to finish the marathon next week. It's from this year. If you've missed it like us and you feel like you have a little bit of homework to do, you want to get a very promising looking 2019 film in, well, you have your excuse. Zha Zhanka's Ash is Purest White should be available on demand as is Our Time Will Come and all the movies that are part of this contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, which will remind people maybe who are new to this that we are doing it not only because this is a cinematic blind spot for us, but also because we're getting to the end of the decade. And these are four movies handpicked by our curator, Sean Gilman, that he thinks are among the best of the 2010s. We do encourage you, if you're going the on-demand route, well, you can also check your local library. Josh loves interlibrary loan, so can does I, Sam. Can I say a word about interlibrary loan? Because Please. I actually received an email from Eva Ava, I, I, either way, I, hopefully one of those is right, but she is an electronic resources librarian with the University of Toronto, pointed out maybe people don't necessarily know what interlibrary loan means, uh, you know, common, obvious to me, married to a librarian, but she said people will give a lot of questions. What does that mean? So basically, if it's not in your library, there is likely a system that your library is a part of that you can go online, log in, and just put in a request there for the title you're looking for, and it'll get sent right to your local library. It's there waiting for you. I do this all the time. It's incredibly easy. So yeah, interlibrary loan, that's what we're talking about. I don't do it as much anymore. In fact, I can't remember the last time I did it because so many of the movies we watch in these marathons now are available on demand, the proliferation of that. But there was a time when we were doing these marathons on the show over the course of 15 years where I had to go to multiple libraries or have another one loan it to my nearby library. And it obviously was a great resource. Your resource for all things Film Spotting Marathons is at our website, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And that is our show. Over at filmspotting.net, you can also find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We've adjusted that Scorsese poll or put out a new one, I mm-hmm. guess we could say. Now we're asking, what is your favorite Scorsese movie? Since Goodfellas, though sense goodfellas to order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch visit filmspotting.net slash shop to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter and we are on facebook and twitter adam is at film spotting i'm at larson on film you know i just realized that we left our audience hanging we didn't weigh in with our picks for the best scorsese film since Goodfellas, and we will leave them in suspense until next week's show. Out in wide release this weekend, Motherless Brooklyn. This is the Edward Norton adaptation of the Jonathan Lethem novel, Terminator Dark Fate, Arctic Dogs also out, and Harriet, the Harriet Tubman biopic directed by Casey Lemons. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago, is Frankie, which I have to say, when I saw the trailer for this for the first time, 
didn't do a whole lot for me, and that's despite the fact that it stars Isabel Huppert, Brendan Gleeson, and Marissa Tomei. That's a great start. Something about it just kind of kept me away, and then I realized it's directed by Ira Sachs, who made Little Men and one of my favorite films of a few years ago, Love is Strange. So definitely see Frankie if you have the opportunity. And as we said, not only Ashes Purest White next week, but we're going to get to the new one from Martin Scorsese, Pacino, De Niro, Pesci, The Irishman. Can't wait. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Jamie Drake. It comes from the album Everything's Fine. More information at jamiedrakemusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> you couldn't even get through it. <laughs> At what point did you stop pretending to say words? After, I don't know, somewhere, basically I knew that I was not going to say any part of summoning the Brethren Court. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All I wanted to do was try to derail you, and it, it worked. I mean, I think I, I got his, we, I think I got his, I think I got his essence. You're, you, were, you were actually really good at the beginning, and then you just kept sliding. That, that was, I mean, that was what I was after, Josh. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.